Welcome to the Wildlife Experience. This is your host, Andrew Austin. In this episode, I interview Saunders Drucker. Uh, Saunders is um, a big herp guy, knows a lot about reptiles and amphibians. Um, so this episode is going to largely be about reptiles and amphibians, uh, but he's also a very well-rounded naturalist. So we do drift into some other topics as well. And um, it's, uh, it was all around a really a good conversation. We covered a lot of stuff. Um, it's, it's rather long. I think we did hit the two hour mark with this one. Um, we, we probably could have gone longer, um, but I try not to go too far over two hours. Um, that's, it's really the, that as long as I think people will listen to these things. Um, but yeah, just really, a, uh, a good all around conversation. We touched on a lot of different, um, conservation topics and, and some more philosophical thoughts about conservation and, uh, his, his career and his interest in, and wildlife and uh, how he got into it and his uh, current uh, PhD work he's doing. And uh, overall, I think you guys will enjoy it. Um, so now I bring you Saunders Drucker. All right. I'm here with Saunders Drucker. Saunders, thanks for being here, man. I'm super excited to be here. I've been listening since you started. Um, and I've been real excited to actually meet you, you know, yeah, man. Same and here. have a conversation with you. Yeah. I got to point out, you have a really cool name first and foremost. <laughs> I, I've got, yeah, I, I, I like my name. Um, I've never met another person named Saunders. Yeah. Um, I have no idea what it's like to like run into someone and have the same name as them. Yeah. Uh, I, it's just, I've known you from the herping community for, I don't know how long I know I watched your mm -hmm. YouTube channel when I was like probably 13 or 14. Um, and, but your name has always just stuck out in the herping community. Like I've, I've, mm. I've always known Saunders Drucker from social media. It's such a unique name. It's got to it be a, is it German or something? You got like German roots. You live in the hill country. <laughs> so uh, it's, I, I've, so Saunders is my, my mother's maiden name. So my, that whole half of my family basically has the last name Saunders. Okay. And it's, I've looked into like the origins of it. It's um, it's like the Gaelic or like Scottish Gaelic form of Alexander. Oh, interesting. Um, which there's like a whole evolution of the name as it was brought from Greece um, all the way up to Scotland, Northern England by the Romani people. Um, starting now as like Alexander, turning into Xander, uh, Sander, Sanders, Saunders. Um, which I don't know it's I, I I'm curious about everything. I love everything, and you know, evolution of languages is is pretty cool. Yeah, man. Um, hum humans are cool in general. Human cultures and the evolution of cultures, and there was a part of me for a long time that like didn't want anything to do with like anything that humans had touched. I was like, oh, I like nature. I like reptiles. I this is all I do, and. If, if you're not looking at like anthropology and the incredible stuff that humans and human cultures are doing, you're missing out. Yeah. Um, people are doing such cool stuff and we have been for thousands of years. Yeah, no doubt. Let's, uh, let's, let's move into, um, just, you know, uh, your background, where you're from in the mm -hmm. world, uh, what you do, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. So I, I was born out in New Mexico, but we moved to 
Texas, the kind of San Antonio area when I was, I think like three years old or something. Um, and so I've, I grew up basically my whole childhood in the, in the hill country of Texas, which, I mean, y'all mentioned it before, but if anybody doesn't know, hill country is just like a weird little limestone plateau intersected by a bunch of rivers and springs. Um, just like a lot of karst caves, underground water, all that stuff. And I, I love the hill country. I mean, that's where I live now. I live over in Wimberley, Texas. I live like a two minute walk from Jacob's well, Man, uh, which is pretty cool. Um, cool. It's a fun place to go swim, some cool plants and animals there. I mean, there's salamanders down in the well. So yeah, I grew up in and around the hill country. Um, and just as a, as a kid fell in love with, with herp and fell in love with all of the kind of weird little pockets of habitat and the weird herps that get into the hill country. It's the hill country is such a, an interesting place to me because like most of the herps of Texas technically live here. They can be found here, but almost none of them are in any sort of high numbers, you know? Um, yeah. It's, it's hard herping the hill country. Yeah, I, it was hard growing up here. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you go and hike for like hours and hours and hours and it's like, oh, I got one black net garter snake or something and you consider it a good day. Yeah. Um, but you have the potential to find all sorts of cool stuff, which, which I really liked. Um, yeah. The other hard thing about the hill country is road cruising here is not feasible at all. Like <laughs> yeah, I've never hardly... It, haven't even have it hasn't even occurred to me to try because nobody does it you know yeah i mean i I know people have found a couple cool stuff road cruising i mean i did too especially when i was like in high school and would cruise every single night um but it does it's not nearly as effective as it is in other places yeah which is fine i prefer (laughs) hiking i want to get i want to get back to uh how did you discover herping so I'm sort of the typical answers that you get from a lot of people. Um, Steve Irwin, duh, was a big thing for me. You know, I'm a dude, I was born in the nineties. And so crocodile hunter was, was really big for me. Um, but aside from that, uh, my mom was a really big influence on my love of nature growing up. She, you know, didn't do any sort of like professional nature stuff or anything, but, you know, she just loved it and uh, helped encourage me to, to get outside a whole bunch when I was a kid. Uh, I remember one of my earliest memories and, you know, whether or not I actually remember this is debatable because of the way that human memory works. But I remember out in New Mexico when I was little, we had a gopher snake that lived in our, uh, our wood pile. And it would eat, you know, the rats that would try and get into our walls and stuff. And I remember her like taking me to set out a bowl of water for it um, <laughs> when I was real little and we called it Slinky. Um, and so I, I think ever since that moment, that first positive interaction with with a snake, it's just, it was all, all I ever really wanted to do. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, even I, when I was like really young living in the suburbs and stuff my cousins and i would just go you know those like water uh pressure things the green things that are out in front of like everybody's house yeah 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 um 
we would just like walk up and down the streets, lift up those and, and catch toads, mostly Gulf Coast toads. Every once in a while, we'd find a garter snake and just be over the moon about it. A black um, neck or a, or a checkered? Uh, a checkered. Not checkered. Checkered yeah, garter. So that's that's pretty think, cool. <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen a black neck garter in, in one of those things, but yeah. for, for years and years and years, it's like, I would just do that in my neighborhood. And then, you know, you get older, you, your sort of radius of places that you can explore gets bigger. And as soon as I could think of, Oh, what am I going to do with my free time? I'm going to go look for frogs and stuff. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah. Well, you, so you, you've been on, you've been in the YouTube game for a long time. And I discovered you when I started watching um, like uh, Brandon Fulton's uh, Brandon's herping adventures and, and uh, mm-hmm. spent logic and herping with Dylan. And it yeah. seems like that was like the, really the, some of the first people on YouTube and, and you were kind of in the mix there, it seems. Yeah, I don't, not to, not to brag or anything, but I think I've got like one of the oldest still running, uh, YouTube herping channels. I mean, there were people around before me for sure. Um, but a lot of them don't post anymore. And I guess I don't post that often. My last video I said that was going to be my final video, but I, I don't think that's the case. I, I after I said that, I was like, ah, no, I kind of got some ideas, but yeah. I don't post that much anymore. But man, if anybody wants like some really sort of embarrassing, cringy little kid stuff, if you go back to my early videos, I'm like 13, 14 years old in some of them, just like catching frogs and toads with my, with my friends. Um, and part of me has wanted to go back and delete those because it's like, oh, like those aren't good videos. Those aren't fun. But I, I keep them up. I think it's I, I like going yeah, back. It's part of the experience, them. man. We all start Absolutely. off somewhere. Yeah, it seems like the the whole sort of social media herping community started on YouTube. Is that is that your experience? Is that what you have found? Yeah, I, w- I would agree with that sort of yeah. hand in hand YouTube and the old forums and stuff. Okay, the forum. Yeah, the forums. I forget about the forums. Like I used to look at the forums, but I never posted. Forum. I never posted in there. I was always scared too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like I, it wasn't worthy enough. I, I was big into them for a long time. Um, I can remember like meticulously crafting my posts back in the day. Like these are yeah. all the animals I found, and like how we found them and what we were doing. Um, but YouTube was also a big part of that because there was you know a lot of people who would. I'm gonna, you know make a video about something and then post that video on the forum. So they kind of went hand in hand for a yeah. long time. Uh, but back in the day, like all those, all those YouTube channels, uh, I remember like waiting for them to get posted. Like you mentioned Smet logic, uh, good old Rob. He's, he's been around forever. And I still watch all of his videos. Yeah. It's just it's so much fun. Um, Herping with Dylan was around. He's not posting as much anymore, but, I used to uh, love I, his videos. <laughs> when I was a kid, I thought he was like Snake a rock Road. Star. The Snake Road videos were awesome. Like just yeah. But and then it's, I really liked uh, uh, Brandon's Herp Adventures. I think that's what his channel was called in yeah, South Carolina. Yeah, I remember or, watching his. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He'd go like he would go like peel bark and find scarlet king snakes and stuff. It was like super cool. Yeah, there there was so much good stuff on early YouTube. Um, of just people going out and finding snakes and, and being silly and having fun. Um, I, I definitely remember, you know, with rose colored glasses, but you know, it, it felt so 
so innocent, so pure, just dudes going out trying to find snakes and then putting it together in like a little montage video with whatever song they thought was cool at the time. Yeah. It's good stuff, man. Um, I never got around to posting on YouTube, but I, I, I really I may have posted one video, but it was, it was really bad. And I never, I think I may have taken it off when I was younger. It's so like mm-hmm. talking about a cotton mouth. I was trying to do like the Steve Irwin style because I thought I was so special. And it's like, mm-hmm. look at me with this cotton mouth. It's really, really bad. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I always aspired to like do actual herping videos. I just, mm. man, I don't, I'm not good at videography. And I find that it, it can um, hinder my experience when I'm out herping mm-hmm. and stuff. I um, think that, that's one of the reasons why I stopped posting so much is it, it became kind of like a chore, you know, like every snake I find, you know, I'm like, Oh, I got to take photos. And then I got to take video, uh, of, of everything. And, you know, when you're rushing like that and you feel like you have to do it, you know, I, I wasn't taking video that I thought was actually good. And, you know, I wasn't putting the effort into it that I, I would have liked to. And it just, it, it kind of becomes a chore, but, uh, I'll probably start doing it again. Just, I do miss it. Yeah. I, I liked that, that really long when you posted, um, when you, you spent like a month or more out in the mountains and was yeah, that Arizona? That, I, that was Arizona, right? Uh, or New, New Mexico. So that was Arizona, New Mexico, and a little okay. bit of Texas. Yeah. The, the that was a cool, that was a different style than, than your usual videos. That was cool. Well, that was, that was for the first season of research that I did for my PhD that I'm working on right now. Um, and I, lived by myself uh out in the mountains for like three whole months God, um three months and just Man, just is... kind of film myself slow, slowly losing my mind uh, <laughs> out there um it, that's a, a really different experience spending yeah. spending that much time out in the wilderness um yeah. and i did it again last summer and i'm doing it again this summer um i don't know maybe i'll make i didn't make a video for it this past summer, but maybe I will for this upcoming video or this upcoming summer. You know what it, it reminded me of? Uh, was that Survivor Man? <laughs> it was like Survivor Man style. That's kind of what I was going for. I remember like I, I like consciously used some things that I remembered seeing in Survivor Man videos of him like setting up the camera and then walking yeah. past it and stuff. Just trying to go for that that same sort of thing. Um, and. I, I would say I kind of, I made that video mostly for myself. Uh, yeah. That first summer was such a, an experience was such a, like a new thing for me um, that I really wanted to catalog it. So that way I could go back and watch it uh, yeah. years later. Um, and some people <laughs> seem to like it and I'm glad it's, it's weird. It's, it's not a typical herping video. Um, it's, it's mostly just like kind of, desert vibes i guess yeah you know the fine story or anything was was less important than just the feel of of what it's like to be out there yeah i, I certainly got the feel of it you could you really capture the experience mm. you know every part of it uh, we, we can talk about um why you're out there your phd work yeah yeah so so i working on a PhD, I am studying the effects of wildfire uh, on rattlesnakes. Uh, I'm working mostly on montane rattlesnakes, although, you know, any species that I find out there, I'm, I'm including. Um, most of my work is on 
blacktail rattlesnakes and uh, rock rattlesnakes, Crotalus lepidus, Crotalus molossus, um, but I switched those around. Um, Crotalus lepidus, the banded rock rattlesnake, Crotalus molossus, the blacktail. And I'm, I'm seeing how fire has, has affected them. I'm following up on some research that was done in like the early 2000s, 90s. Um, and it's been 20 years since that last bout of research was done. And so a follow-up study seemed plausible at the time. There was also, you know, a nice big wildfire out there that did a really nice burn scar, a nice study area. And so I, I was originally working on like Houston toad stuff. My lab does a lot of work with Houston toads and I, I like that work, but I didn't want to do that for my PhD. And as soon as there was a fire out in New Mexico, I like went to my boss and I was like, Hey, this is the time to do this, this study. Um, and, and so I did, and I, I've wanted to work with work on rattlesnakes, like since I was a little kid. It seems um, like Lepidus is your passion or your passion. Yeah, that, they're, that's probably my favorite organism yeah, on earth. Tell um, by your Instagram, man. You're out there looking for them, even when you're not working. Yeah, I mean, they're just, they're incredible. They exhibit so much variation, both between localities and among individuals, uh, which I find really, really just fascinating. Um, like for my project, I started out uh, doing pit tags for them. Uh, which is like a little grain of rice sized metallic chip and you put it under their skin and then you can scan it and determine individuals. But I stopped doing that because the markings on them are so unique to individuals that you really don't even need to. Yeah. Um, you just take really good photographs. Yeah. And if, you know, if you take a good photograph or you just work with it, you can just tell individuals. Yeah. Um, like I got to recapture this summer who was like half a mile away from his original capture point. You just crawling through the grass. And I was like, I was like, I think I recognize that snake. Hold up. Um, you know, and checked my phone, looked at the phone. And I was like, Oh yeah, I know this dude. Um, which is just a weird thing to be able to say that you can recognize yeah. individual snakes out on a landscape. I don't know how many people can say that. Yeah. But so I'm, I'm working on the effects of fire on rattlesnakes. And so I'm pairing, you know, rattlesnake body condition, diet, behavior work with, you know, these really intensive vegetation transect surveys, um, as well as like stable isotope work on the, the snakes themselves, the like soils where they're found. Basically, if there's something that we can test to check the effects of fire on a rattlesnake, I'm doing it. You're, you're collecting a lot of data. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's intense. It's, it's full days out there, but I've got a lot of data. Hopefully it's good data <laughs> yeah. and hopefully I can get a nice project out of it. Yeah. It's a big part of, uh, the allure to Lepidus is the areas where they're found are beautiful. <laughs> mm -hmm. I think so. There, there's a lot of like kind of fun banter competition between, you know, like the, the croat guys and the, and the Lampro dudes. Um, and you know, I, I love both species. I think the kind of arguments, discussions about them are all in good fun, but 
deep down, I think the reason why I landed on the the rattlesnake side of it is I much prefer hiking in beautiful places to to cut shining. Um, and so that that's probably the main drive for me, especially with banded rock rattlesnakes is to find them, you got to get out there and hike. Um, and you're going and hiking in these remote mountain ranges where not, not many people go. Um, there's a lot of them have no trails or anything. You're not running into, to birders or hikers or anything out there. It's a lot of it is like, all right, that hill over there, we're going to walk through the desert and then just like hike up the side of it, see what we can find. And the the views and the habitats and everything that goes along with the snakes is just so incredible that even if you get skunked it's it's a great day yeah. um which i i can't say the same thing about you know getting skunked road cruising or uh or or cut shining if if i get skunked road cruising or cut shining i'm, I'm in a, a bad mood <laughs> but if i get skunked while hiking then you know i just had a good day hiking win-win I don't know if you've mm-hmm. had the same experience as you've, you've, uh, evolved in your herping career. Mm-hmm. Like when I was young, I could go into an urban ugly ditch and find snakes and be totally happy. Mm-hmm. And now I, a big part of it is the habitat, the, the context that these snakes are found in, you know, mm-hmm. the wilder, the better, the more pristine, the better and finding snakes and in interesting plant communities. That's really what does it for me now, which is just mm-hmm. it's interesting to think back. Cause when I was younger, I didn't give a, shit where they were found i just like snakes yeah and that's i mean i I think that's just the the process of of maturing i can remember exactly what you're talking about i've got a you know a deep-seated good memory of sitting in a ditch in like a dry creek bed um just muddy water like up to my chest just catching water snakes and having a grand old time um whereas now if someone was like hey you want to go sit in some mud and catch a bunch of Nerodia, I'd be like, nah, I'm all right. Like I'll walk past the ditch and see a Nerodia and be like, Oh, that's cool. But I'm not, you know, catching every single one. Whereas now, yeah, like you say, it's, it's the habitat around it. It's the plant communities. It's, it's for me, honestly, getting to see some sort of like natural behavior um, of the animal of the snake. Like that's, Oh, that's the, the piece de resistance or whatever yeah. it is, the, the cherry on top. Like if yeah. I can find a rattlesnake in ambush position in situ, I'm over the moon, just yeah. so excited. Cause then it's like, all right, this is what this animal is actually like out in the wild. Yep. Um, that's become really important to me, but at the same time, like I'm not, I, I, I'm not going to put anybody down if, if they really like hopping into muddy ditches and catching a bunch of water snakes. If, if you're having fun and, and that's what brings you joy, absolutely go do it. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, for and sure. you know, every once in a while, I'll, like meet a kid or something at like a nature or a nature center or something. Um, and I'll see him like jumping in the water after a water snake. I'm like, yeah, you go dude. Like that's, that's <laughs> awesome. Yep. It's, it's just nice to see people appreciating nature in, in any way. Um, sometimes I wish, even if it, I go ahead. Uh, just even if it's not something I do myself anymore, you know, I'm excited to see other people doing it. Oh yeah, for sure. Sometimes I wish my standards were not so high for my outdoor mm-hmm. experiences. <laughs> it's gotten, it's gotten to be too much. I gotta like, 
got to go to the most pristine areas to have a really good time. So I, mm-hmm. I am just very fascinated by, you know, pre-European settlement ecosystems and, and mm. seeing different species in those more pristine areas, like things were before and how they are supposed to be, I don't know, I have a hard time, hard time articulating my passion for that sort of situation. But mm. that really seems to be what really gets me excited is uh, spending time in areas that haven't been altered by humans. I, I know exactly what you, what you mean, what you're talking yeah. about. Yeah. Last year I found two blacktail rattlesnakes in the hill country, which for people who don't know, like that's, they're a pretty <clears throat> difficult snake to find in the hill country. I had never seen one despite growing up here. Um, and the first two that we found were in this like remote, gorgeous, uh, canyon out in the hill country that so much of the hill country all of the hardwoods got logged whenever european settlers showed up i mean that's why the lost maples are lost it's not because it's like an ecologically distinct population just all the other ones got cut down basically um but these these two blacktail rattlesnakes were found in just like this gorgeous hardwood canyon with like maples and basswoods and slippery elms and all these trees that you just don't see anymore um and, and finding them there in, in such a beautiful spot that seemed so untouched. Obviously, you know, you struggle to find a single spot on planet Earth that hasn't been touched. Right. Um, but it, I don't know, it felt, it felt old. It felt like what the Hill yeah. Country was supposed to be like. Like a glimpse into the past. That's, that's, what, Absolutely. It's, that's what I want, I go for. I'm trying to see mm-hmm. what things were like before. Really fascinating. So you've you've heard in some cool places. Now I'm, you're at Texas State now. I'm at Texas State now University. You did your undergrad, Texas. Okay, and you did your undergrad in Florida, right? So I did my undergrad in Tennessee oh, at Tennessee. this okay. tiny little school called Sewanee, the University okay. of the South. Okay. Which, if anybody listened to this, is you know a herper naturalist sort of person who's looking at where to go to college. Um, Sewanee is a school with like 1500 students uh, that is situated on a like 3000 acre forest preserve. Um, They own just this massive area of the Cumberland Plateau that's still got patches of old growth forest. And if you go there and you're a student, you have free access to hike and camp and climb anywhere on the property, basically. and that, that's why I went to Swanee. And if anybody else is, is looking at where to go, that's, you know, it's got my full recommendation. Yeah. Go there. Tell them Saunders sent you. <laughs> a lot of value in going to a small school too, um, in mm-hmm. regards to getting hands-on research experience. Absolutely. And that's, that is, I would say, why I am where I am now. So Swanee doesn't have a grad school. Um, actually, they have a, a seminary, but that's... I guess not what what I'm really talking about at the moment, Um, but they don't have a grad school. And so all of the professors um, encourage undergraduate research, especially in the biology department. So as an undergrad, I, you know, got to design and carry out a a research project that was basically the equivalent of a master's. If I'd done it at any other school, I probably could have gotten a master's out of it. I did two years of field work studying, um, studying stream salamanders, uh, 
all sorts of like Desmognathus and Uresia and Pseudotriton, uh, specifically focusing on the Cumberland dusky salamander, Desmognathus abditus. Um, and it was awesome because I had this fantastic professor there who she was just such an influence on me. And I, I showed up and I was like, I want to do salamander research. I want to do herp research. And she was like, all right, let's go. And designed a project, implemented it and got, I think, three scientific publications out of it. Um, yeah. And, you know, we, we published good data. We helped put the Cumberland dusky salamander on the state threatened list because we did a bunch of population stuff for it. Yep. And that was just, I, I can't imagine having gotten that opportunity anywhere else. Um, you go to a big state school or something, like if I'd gone to Texas State for my undergrad, you know, I would have kind of gotten lost off to the side as an undergrad. You know, maybe if I was lucky, I could have helped with someone else's research, but the opportunity to come up with my own project and, and study salamanders out in the Cumberland Plateau, absolutely incredible. Yeah. If you're looking and going biology, I would absolutely encourage doing a, a smaller school where you can get like a more personal, um, personal touch. Yeah, I, I agree. Your, I, I went to uh, a big state school and uh, my last semester, I ended up getting to do some cool stuff with Houston toads and chicken turtles. Uh, mm. But overall, it was very hard to get hands-on experience because it's AM is such a big school where I went and um, yeah, it's just I mean, much more difficult. <laughs> yeah. I, I almost went to AM. growing up in Texas, you know, it, I kind of assumed my whole life. It's like, all right, when I graduate high school, I either go to AM or UT. Um, and I have many, many family members who went to, to AM. and I was like dead set on it, especially cause you know, there's, really good researchers there. I mean, James Dixon was still there when I was looking or, well, I guess he was emeritus, but he was still alive yeah. and involved. Um, as well as, you know, Troy Hibbets, um, Toby, Toby Hibbets or Toby Hibbets. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> the they brother. all got T names. They all, they've all yeah. got T names, and Hard to keep up up. With them. but there, there were, you know, good people there and I was dead set on it. And my parents, you know, thank God for them. They, they told me that I had to apply I had to find another school to apply to. Um, and so they had a, a friend or something whose daughter went to Swanee, something like that. Um, and I was like, all right, I'm going to go check out this school. And I went and I visited and I saw, you know, the forest and the campus and everything. And I was like, all right, no, I'm, I'm going here. Like this, this is it. Um, and I'm really glad I did. Yeah. Although that's, like that's it. not to say that Texas A&M isn't a good school. It's a, a fantastic school, especially for biology. But oh, yeah. It's just, I, I was happy to get the personal touch of a smaller school. Yeah, for sure. And, and during that time when you were there, it seems like you got a really good feel for all the amazing herp diversity in the eastern part of the U.S. Yeah. and southeast. Yeah, the the Appalachian Mountains, both like the Smokies and Cumberland Plateau. For those of you who don't know, the salamander diversity there is unparalleled anywhere else on Earth. Um, there's some really cool diversity down in Central America, but Smoky Mountains, there are so many species of salamanders there and they're occupying all these interesting niches and there's all this like cool evolutionary adaptation and radiation amongst them. And I, I could spend my whole life working on salamanders out there. It was just fantastic. And then the nice thing about 
college in general, especially for biology is I went into it. Like I like herbs and that's all I like, you know, I don't care about plants. I don't care about birds, (laughs) whatever. But then, you know, going to, going to college out there, you know, I got professors who were like, Hey, Saunders, calm down and look at this tree or something. Um, and I was starting to learn about like habitats and, you know, ecology, how it's not just like a snake sitting out there on a landscape, not in connection with anything. There's just this massive web of interesting species and all these abiotic factors that uh, it's just, it's so beautiful. It's just absolutely incredible. Uh, And so I got to learn so much stuff out there. There's a, a lot of people these days who I don't know. It didn't get the university experience that I got. Um, And I I do think that we as a culture kind of put too much weight onto having a degree um, kind of to a destructive extent. Um, But my time in undergrad was irreplaceable. And I am very happy for the time that I spent out there. Yeah. I I agree about the the point you made about, um, the obsession with, you know, college, like you can be a, a great naturalist and make meaningful contributions to science with a no degree. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I, I know so many people who are, you know, sharp as a tack and like have spent their, their lives, like working on a specific taxa or something and they don't have the degree. And so people will be like, Oh, they're not an expert or something. It's like, okay, no, no, no. Like you will, you'd struggle to find someone who knows more about, you know, this species than this person. Um, and just cause they don't have the degree. I think, I think it's dumb that we kind of make that the end all be all. Yeah. Um, there's other ways to become experts in things. And I, I say that as someone who's currently getting a PhD, who's doing the whole song and dance to right. you know, get the three letters in front of my name. So yeah. that way people will consider me an expert <laughs> in something. Oh, what's your plan with that? Do you, do you want to stick with academia or, or what? I think, Someday I will probably return to academia. Um, I would really love to, to teach at a, a smaller school yep. like Swanee or something. Um, after spending a bunch of time at Texas state, I don't really have a desire to like to teach or work at a big state school. Um, there's just a lot of, uh, there's a lot of time spent doing things other than administrative stuff. Maybe. Yeah, like- absolutely. Um, but a smaller school, I think it'd be cool. But my plan for, for now is once I graduate, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do a job or something that <laughs> is nothing like academia. Um, <laughs> yeah. I just, I, w- I want to do field research. I want to spend as much time out in the field as possible. I'd love to travel a whole bunch. Um, but working at like a research station, um, or, you know, on research projects, like traveling around and, and working on them. I think that's what I'll probably do. I just, I want to be outside doing field work, especially like intense wilderness field work, as long as I'm physically able to do so. Yeah. Um, maybe once I like tear my ACL or something, maybe then I'll slow down. Um, but for now, I just, I want to be outside seeing as much as I can. Yeah. 
you still do you still do you still do a lot of herping on your free time when you're off or because you're out in the field a lot for work um it it depends on the time of year i would say during the summer even though i'm out there like working um and studying herps like as i'm driving out to new mexico and stuff i'll still stop in west texas for a few nights and and herp and you are all, you know, take a weekend off to go to Arizona to try and find something. Um, but around the hill country, I don't, I don't know if I would say that I, I herp as much as I like, I hike with a sort of ecological mindset, you know, um, like I'll go. So, um, a few weeks ago, I went over to Lake Somerville, which is a a cool little area. Um, and you know, we, we walked around, found some, some rat snakes and some Nerodi and stuff, but that I wouldn't say that I was specifically there to herp. I was there because there's some really nice kind of undisturbed bottomlands over there. And I wanted to see what the the habitat was like. I wanted to see, you know, what plants, what ecosystems were going on. Yep. Um, I would say these days, like as far as like a weekly hobby, I'm much more of a birder um, okay. partially because it takes a little bit less time. You know, I can go to a, little park in San Marcos and bird for an hour and a half before class really easily. Yeah. Um, which is nice. And just, I grew up in this area of Texas. I've seen everything, you know, three or four times basically, except <laughs> for like a few white whales that is, is right. hard to find. What um, are those white whales? Uh, a Texas garter snake, which is okay. not the most interesting thing, but you know, I, I just haven't spent a lot of time in their range. Yeah. Um, I'd really like to find an indigo snake in the hill country. I've seen Texas indigos a few times. Um, I'd like to find one in the hill country proper, which is a little bit tough, but what about there are lepidus records on the Western extent Mm -hmm. of the Edwards plateau, right? Yeah. I've found some, a couple of them pretty far East, but I I would like to find one in what I consider the balconies proper. The balconies. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I need, the problem with herping around the hill country is, you know, private land. On a, well, yes, absolutely that. But also, Terrible. I'm gone all summer for, okay, yeah. for field work. Yeah. And so, you know, the warm, humid night in June or something, when I would like to go look for a hill country lepidus, I'm out in New Mexico or something. Gotcha. The, the few things that I do still try pretty hard for here in the hill country is, uh, Barking frogs, Crowgaster, Augusti. I I love those dudes so much. And the herping form is like, I mean, it's road cruising and shining cuts, but in like these rainstorms on like these back mountain windy roads until like 5 a.m. or something. <laughs> and I don't know why I love doing that as much as I do. They're so cool. Yeah. The frogs are just, I mean, there's nothing else like them. Yeah, they're they're in really the unique. When's the best time of year for them? Spring and fall. Okay. If there's a rainy night in spring or fall, um, then you're you're pretty good to go. The I would say the problem with them is a lot of times you go out there and you cruise all night and you're hearing them all over because that they they call so loud that you can hear them calling from like distant hilltops, but you know if you don't see one on a cut or you don't see one crossing the road, then, then good luck. Yeah. Um, so I, I still, I go for them 
every fall and every spring um, if there's a good night. Uh, and then uh, what is it? The Texas alligator lizards, the Garanotis infernalis. Yep. I, I love those dudes. They're so cool. I remember finding one when I was a kid and it just blew my mind. And so I still, I take a few trips, you know, again, every spring and every fall um, to go see them at some populations where I've been seeing like the same individuals for a few years or try and find them in a new spot. Um, yeah. They, they just feel like such a little hill country specialty to me. Yep. Um, although, you know, you can find them up in like the Chisos mountains and stuff out in West Texas. But those two species specifically, they just, they feel like the hill country. I don't know how to explain it. And so I, I, I love going to look for them. And especially the uh, Texas alligator lizard. When I, when I think of the Edwards Plateau, I think of Texas alligator lizards mm-hmm. in particular. Well, Although especially I have not I got, seen one yet. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, you, we got to herd together at some yeah. point. We'll yeah. go, we'll go find a, a Texas alligator lizard. Mike um, keeps letting me down. <laughs> Uh, I like Mike. I like herping with Mike. But yeah. he's he's been finding a whole bunch of them recently. He's got a, he's got a good spot um, for him. Yeah, that, that's how they seem to be like really locally abundant. Yeah. Um, like you can spend years and years and years looking for them um, and not see one, or you can go to you know spot around Austin and on the right day and get like nine or ten of them. Um, <laughs> Crazy. They just seem weirdly localized. I don't know exactly what it is, but uh, I love like little biogeographical patterns like that. You know, why are they, why aren't they in this little, little spot of hills and not over here? Or are they in both? Um, and, yeah. you know, just hard time finding like my, so there's a big canyon behind the house that I grew up in, um, which, you know, was fantastic for me as a little kid because I just go run around at it. But my entire childhood never found a single Texas alligator lizard down there, despite it looking like fantastic habitat. And then like two years ago, my mom found one on our back porch. Um, so, you know, yeah, maybe I just, I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know how to look for them for, for all those, <laughs> which is possible. You know, it's so, some of those areas um, in and around Austin where they're, they seem to be pretty common that you can see on iNaturalist they're posted pretty, pretty mm-hmm. frequently. Do you think that, that's a problem. Do you think some of these areas where they once were common and they're, you know, supposedly not as common, do you think collecting is an issue? Any of that stuff? Yeah. So I naturalist is a, an interesting subject amongst herpers. Um, there's a lot of people who, who hate it, who can't stand it. I, as a scientist, I love data. And I think that I naturalist is incredibly useful mm-hmm. for all sorts of projects and projects that go into conservation um that being said uh anyone listening to this obscure every single thing you put on inat even if it's like you know the most common plant in the world um even if it's like a little tantila or ground snake or something that you don't you know you don't care if somebody found one you know you don't care if somebody knows where you found it Uh, obscure everything um there's a lot of people who will like go to a board line or something and they'll, you know, they'll obscure like the cool rare snake that they found there, but the other snakes that they found, they won't obscure. Cause they're like, Oh, nobody cares about a garter snake. And it's like, well, you're still giving away that, that spot. Yeah. Um, put two and two together and there you go. <laughs> yeah. It's not hard to figure that yeah. out. So just uh, obscure it, but it, it can be such 
an incredible resource for for tracking populations of species that are hard to find you know and crowdsourcing it out is a really good way to get good data um so that aside um collection of them and just like knowledge of some of the spots i would say is is definitely a little bit of a problem um yeah i've i've heard like stories of people who you know they're like, oh yeah, I knew a kid who used to go out and cruise this road for alligator lizards in the fall, would find like 12 of them a day and would, you know, just collect them all and sell them to the pet shop for like 50 bucks each or something. Um, and I've heard that same story about, not about the, like the same person, but that same story in regards to like two or three different spots. Wow. Um, some of which are, you know, now pretty well known to people. Um, and some of them were like going back into like the, the eighties and nineties and stuff. Um, so I do think that like their local abundance has kind of led to some collection pressure. Yeah. I mean, you can go to a, you know, a reptile expo around Austin these days and see a, a wild caught Texas alligator lizard in a deli cup. Um, even now, which makes me sad seeing that sort of stuff but yeah. it's it's definitely still happening it's definitely a problem and yeah. they they seem to reproduce so slowly and grow so slowly um that i'm sure that they they have a hard time bouncing back from that sort of pressure yeah i mean that that's also like the same sort of pressure i think that um domestic cats have absolutely wrecked them yeah um you know it's a a slow moving lizard that when it is caught what it does is you know it opens its mouth and like hisses and stuff you know feral cat domestic cat that's super easy prey um can't really get away so i'm sure that and then you know if you look around austin san antonio there's so much development um happening up in like the the really hilly areas that the alligator lizards like um that i'm sure that that hasn't helped but you know, it's pressure from, from all sides. I would, I would yes. say death by unfortunately. Cuts. <laughs> yeah. On the, on the bright side, I always gripe about all of our public land. I mean, our private mm-hmm. land that we can't access, but at least those areas don't get as much of that pressure. Yeah. That's the, that's the double-edged sword of, yeah. of Texas. There are so many cool places that I, I would love to go visit, but they're, they're private and you can't, and that hurts because I want to go see and explore these areas. But at the same time, if it helps conserve some of the land um, or some of the species, then then I can't really argue about that. My only problem with that sort of argument, and I've heard a lot of people make that argument, they're like, oh, these private ranches are really good for wildlife. uh, The problem with that sort of stuff is that like anything not explicitly saved, um, just seems like it'll be lost in time. Yeah. Uh, there's so many like big ranches that, you know, for years and years and years, people sort of took it for granted, like, Oh, this area is conserved. It's cool. But then, you know, the person who owns it dies and they leave it to like their five kids, their kids don't want to work a ranch. And so they divide it up and, you know, three out of the five kids sell it to KB homes to get <laughs> developed or something. Um, problem, especially. In yeah. Yeah, areas around San Antonio and Austin and the corridor between is just development is exploding like crazy right now. And I know people 
need places to live, obviously. Right. Um, but you know, KB homes doesn't care about conservation at all. Yeah. The, the neighborhoods that they make just like wipe everything clean. Um, yeah. Yeah. But you know, there, no, no. there are a bunch of ranches out there that are doing yeah. good work and doing and good conservation. I'm really thankful they, for those. When they, um, when they, uh, do the conservation easement for their ranch. That, that's mm. really valuable because then that that prevents the subdivision from happening mm-hmm. if it ever gets. Yeah, and there's it. It's that's really important, and I know there's been a, a bigger push in Texas recently um, to encourage that. So there's, I, I should say at the beginning, um, I am not like a a land governmental policy. Uh, expert at all but there are um exemptions that you can get like conservation easement sort of stuff and you can get tax breaks for it um and so there's been encouragement recently to be like hey you know you don't have to sell your land or anything um we can put this together to like make this a conservation easement and kind of build corridors and and protect areas for generations to come and i think that sort of work is is so important because there's a lot of people who aren't ecologically minded um, and they don't know what they have. They don't know what their house is, is like built on um, and showing those people like, Hey, you've got all this cool stuff going on here. Um, how about let's, let's get it in writing to protect it. And let's get you a nice little benefit on the side. You, you, right. you know, cut down on your property taxes or something. Right. While we're on the topic of uh, conservation, uh, mm-hmm. What are the biggest threats to herps overall, do you think? Overall, um, well, I would say first that, you know, the, the threats kind of weigh differently in different places. Yep. Um, but, you know, the, the threats that are to herps are kind of the same as, as everything else. I mean, number one seems to be habitat fragmentation. Um, and loss of habitat and herps are really good at like sticking it out in a small little patch of habitat. Like you can find a little city park or something that for some reason has, you know, a billion hog noses or something. Um, and they can stick it out, but you know, if there's no connection to other habitats, um, and there's no new individuals coming in there and, you know, just continued pressure from that fragmentation, then, you know, even those resilient populations start to start to decline over yeah. time. It's a genetic um, genetic drift. Mm-hmm. Well, and like, you know, if you do have say a, a little city park or something that's, uh, you know, got a good population around that city park, you get, you know, a lot of road mortality, oh, yeah. you get a lot of domestic feral cats and stuff. And those things just chip at the population yeah. Um, yeah. over and over and over. There are, other places and other um, species where I would say that kind of over collection or like killing by humans or just human take, whether that's, you know, taking the animal or killing the animal, I would say that's probably like the biggest pressure. Um, Okay. And great. I say it's the biggest pressure not to, I don't mean that in like, it's destroying the population. I just mean that, that it literally is like the biggest pressure. Um, 
like, and so this is, I might make some people angry right now. Um, there's a lot of places in, in West Texas where the biggest pressure on something like Alterna, gray banded king snake, um, the greatest pressure to their population is probably collection by people. It's really small and really localized, just like cuts. Um, yep. You know, West Texas is massive and there's all these areas that people can't access. And overall, the species is doing absolutely fine, you know, um, and they're not in any danger. But, you know, some of these like road cuts and little localized populations, the, the, the biggest pressure to those species is, is people collecting them. Yeah. Now, that being said, you know, a lot of those populations seem like they are healthy enough to exist with, you know, some sort of, of, you know, of take um, some sort of collection in the same way that, you know, populations of other animals are healthy enough to support hunting. Yeah. Um, and so I'm not, you know, I'm not coming out here and, and saying like, oh, these things are evil and destroying the populations. I, I'm just stating the fact that, you know, on a cut in Sanderson, the, the thing that takes the most alterna out of a population is probably people collecting them. Right. Um, and that sucks it, for other herpers mainly. Yeah. Uh, yeah, ab it's absolutely. It, it's not damaging like the, you know, it's, it's hard, probably not even affecting the population, like two miles back, you know, yeah. onto the land away from the cut. Um, but as far as like those little tiny localized population goes, um, then, you know, it's, it's, you can't say that it's not having any effect, whether right. that effect is like big enough to actually hurt things is doubtable, but you know, yeah, it's really something to think yeah. about. And, and me personally, I, like when I was a kid, I loved to, like when I would catch a snake, I'd bring it home, keep it as mm -hmm. a pet. Now I, I find a snake, I, I get nice photographs. I brought it home. I would just get bored of it really fast and mm. <laughs> release it. You know, I'd, I really like seeing animals in their environment and then moving on. Yeah. Now, everybody's, everybody's different. You know, everybody, some people really enjoy bringing it home and, you know, keeping mm. a collection, but you know, yeah, I'm, I'm the same way. I mean, for years I, I grew up going out to West Texas and, you know, I collected snakes while I was out there all legally with like my permits or yeah. with, you know, the, the hunting license and stuff doing it all all the legal way um but I, I think after a while once i got more into like the ecology of it and understanding nature it just it interested me less and less and less to the point where taking something home these days just that's that's not why i like animals I, i've got a few pet snakes um my, my i used to have a lot more and my collection sort of dropped but I, I much prefer seeing something out in the wild. Um, and that's just me. Um, I'm not trying to demonize like collection and stuff as long as, you know, it's done intelligently and, and, and legally. I mean, I honestly, I've got, I, I've got some pretty weird opinions about like reptile collection. I think that we should take a note from hunters and like introduce like a tag system yeah. bag limit sort of stuff um, yeah. for some species. And then, like use that to actually get some good monitoring data on stuff, but herpers are, are notorious that, for, that, for not liking government insight or that, oversight. If, if herpers were treated like hunters where you had to buy, well, we, we do have to, you do have to have a hunting license in Texas, but if mm. overall, you know, across the U S if, if, if herping 
um, and Herp Conservation adopted the North American model of conservation mm. where it's a user pay model. I think mm. it would really benefit Herps if we all had to buy a license and a Herp permit and, mm. um, you know, not just a $10 permit, like hunters pay a lot more in permits mm. and licensing than, than any other group mm. you know, of, of outdoors people. And if, you know, if Herpers were more um, inclined to do that, it, it could really benefit the amount of money we have to conserve Herps. Yeah, I'm, I'm not a hunter myself, although every single year I, I say that I'm going to buy a rifle and, and take a whitetail, um, and then I just get busy and I don't do it. Um, but if you want to look at conservation success stories just over and over and over all around the world, um, in intelligent hunting, intelligent take obviously works. Yeah. Um, and I think that uh, the main thing that I'd be interested in is like the, the population data that you could get from it. Yep. Um, I mentioned Alterna earlier, so I'll just stick with that example. If you had, you know, people reporting all, all of the Alterna that they collected, you could use that to monitor those populations. And then a few years down the line, like if you see like, Oh, Oh crap. Like these populations are, are just, nosediving hardcore then you have that information i think the problem these days with with a lot of collection is that so much of the population stuff that we have is incredibly anecdotal you yeah. know it's like hearing some old herper saying like oh man back in the day we used to go out and catch like 20 of these a night or something That's, i was about to i was about to note that i, I remember seeing on facebook there was somebody that that mm -hmm. uh, had heard you could go out to a cut in West Texas and find 20 on a cut in like an hour. Yeah. 20 alterna. Yeah. And that's like, I mean, anybody who's been out there in the past, I, I don't know how it used to be, but anybody who's been out there in the past, like 10 or 15 years knows that's not the case. You can still have good nights and get like maybe three or four or something. But I, I think just right now, like a lot of people will argue about like, Oh, like is, is collection. Um, from roads or cuts like affecting the populations and the the answer is we don't know we don't have the data to be able to make those intelligent decisions right now yes. it's all anecdotal and you know it's 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 not scientific you know it's might be useful here and there for you know your own personal like herping use but yeah. we uh, we have no idea a lot of the cases, what these populations are, are actually like. Yeah. Um, and that's not just true for, for West Texas and, and Alterna. That's true for New Mexico and, and rock rattlers. That's true for, you know, diamondbacks in Georgia and, and Florida. Um, a lot of the times we, we don't really know what's going on. We don't have any sort of system for actually monitoring these populations. And, I'm not going to come out and say that like, Oh, collection is killing all these is, is killing these populations and leading to declines. I'm just going to say that, that we, we don't know. Yeah. And, and that's I, the, I that's would a love, scientist in you. I, I would love to have a system in place where we could actually see what's going on and make intelligent conservation moves about any of these species. Cause in the end, like that's, that's all I care about. Right. 
all, all I care about is making sure that these species continue to exist. Um, yeah. And that if, if they were to go extinct someday, that it's not, you know, it's not in the direct hand or at the hands of herpers specifically, right. you know, maybe it's due to, you know, loss of habitat from like oil mining and stuff. Cause I didn't say that earlier, but you know, oil exploration and stuff in West Texas, there are certain populations where like that traffic and, you know, building of the oil, um, oil pads and stuff like is probably one of the bigger threats. Um, but that's the thing we don't know. Um, and, and herpers as much as I am one, and as much as I, I love them, uh, we, we really don't like any sort of like self-regulation, I guess. Yeah. Um, or we're bad at self-regulation. And so we don't, you know, want any sort of regulation over us. I, I'm, I'm sure some of the stuff that I've, I've said will make somebody angry. I don't know yeah, if, if somebody sure. listening just got angry clear. about that, shoot me a message. I'm yeah. more than happy to have this discussion with yeah. anyone. You're, 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 um, you're rather open-minded. We're just, we're just talking here. We're just having a conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. It's, uh, I'll have a conversation with, with, with anyone about yeah. this stuff. Um, and it's, uh, I'm sure your views have changed as you've gone from just herp hobbyist into going to be a herpetologist. You're mm-hmm. interested in these sorts of questions, um, not because you're just like mad at herpers, but because you're interested in herp populations and conservation. Absolutely. Um, I'm really interested in the way that that populations work um, and the way that they, they fluctuate and what, what makes them tick. Um, And for so many species of herps, because sampling is so difficult. um, And I say that as someone who has spent years sampling rock rattlesnakes and stuff out in the mountains, it's tough to get a good sample size. Um, And so we, we don't really know what's going on in a lot of cases. Um, besides just just hearsay um and so i I just uh, i want to protect these species and that's definitely changed um you know i remember the first few times i went out in the west texas you know i I was angry that i had to i had to get this hunting license and it was government overreach and yada 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 um but now that i know more i know that you know hunting license sales and, and tag systems you know it's, it's been incredibly useful for the conservation of so many species. Um, like if you want to look at a a success story, white-tailed deer used to be uncommon, uh, cause we hunted them like crazy and, you know, fragmented a bunch of their habitat. And now there's probably more than 500 deer within a mile radius of my house. They're, are so many deer in my neighborhood. It's so annoying. It's absolutely insane. I've never seen anything like it, but yeah. it's a conservation success story. Yeah. To, almost, almost too, too, much too successful. Yeah. yeah. Uh, they're I, probably I past their natural population numbers now because of their, they're now benefiting from humans. Mm-hmm. 100%. I, I wish I could take a deer in my backyard <laughs> so badly. Oh, hey, grab although, get a, a bow and arrow, man. Yeah. Uh, I need quiet. to. <laughs> That's funny. Hey, while we're we're talking about rattlesnakes and populations, what do you make of the Western pygmy rattlesnake in Texas? I know you you already found one. You you spend very little time in East Texas, and that's very frustrating for an East Texan who has been looking his whole life and hasn't found one. 
Well, I'll, I can, I can qualify that story a little bit. Um, I don't know much about them. I've heard from people that they've been declining and that some spots that used to be good for them are not good anymore. Even though those spots like were in an area that was conserved 30 years ago and is still conserved now. Um, and so we wonder why those declines happen. Um, but the one that I found was, <laughs> so when I first started grad school, I was teaching a class called um, natural history of vertebrates. And so we, we taught our students about like birds and herps and fish, um, mammals, all sorts of stuff. And, you know, we would do all these cool field trips. Uh, like we did electro fishing and a bunch of birding stuff. And for spring break, we did a, uh, like an overnight camping trip. And when we were trying to figure out where we were going to do it, one of the areas, I'm not going to say the, the spot, um, but was an area that I knew was at least decent for pygmy rattlers. Yeah. And so I, I started pushing it really, really hard. And I was like, Hey, we should definitely go here. Yeah. I've heard it. So, so cool. And then we get there and, you know, I basically get like 15 students like out in the woods and I'm like, all right, everybody start flipping logs and make sure you put them <laughs> back and stuff and just have these people spread out. Cause I really yeah. wanted to find a pygmy rattlesnake. Um, yeah. And what's funny is like, you know, I got all of them out there looking for pygmy rattlesnakes and I was the one who flipped it, which I was very happy about. That was, yes. you know, much more rewarding for me. Um, just flipped a little log and a little tiny snake coiled up. Um, I, I know the spot and I, I go out there and I, I spend much of my time and um, in more of the bottomlands out there. Mm-hmm. Um, it looks like in the photos, it looked like one of the sandhill uplands where that snake was. I, I don't know if that was the case, but. Uh, no, it was in some, some bottom lands. Oh, that was bottom. Um, Although I guess it was kind of like at that that transitional. Yeah. 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 Uh, We should get out there, out there sometime. I've been dying to go back to that area. It's a cool place, man. There's, there's like six or seven different plant communities there. Yeah. Springs and stuff. I went and looked at some of the springs last time I was there. Really neat. Yeah. I, I need to get back out there. I've in the last, like, it seems like every winter I get into something new, I guess. Yeah. Like three years ago in the winter, you know, there were no herps around. So I got really into, uh, into fish, although I I'd been into freshwater fish before then, but I, I dove into it more last year was birds. And then for like the past year, I've just been diving into native plants. Yeah. And so now I go outside, I'm like, Oh my goodness, there's, there's all this cool stuff that I've just been walking by. I had no idea yeah. um, of, about all this super interesting, you know, ecologies and little plant communities. And so now I'm thinking back to all these places and I'm like, I want to go back there. Yeah. I missed out on that. I didn't, I didn't know there were cool plants there, um, which is actually native plants is how I, I, I first realized that you were cool. Um, <laughs> I remember like, you know, following all these people on, on Instagram, you know, they post herps and stuff and that, that's stuff is interesting. Um, but I remember you posted something about like native plant communities and I was like, Oh wait, wait, this dude gets it. Yeah. This dude knows what's going dude, on. If you like herps, uh, well, if you're like us and like the way we click is going out and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, getting into interesting ecological areas and, you know, seeing interesting species that have interesting niches and mm-hmm. plants are just right, right in the mix, you know, they're right there. Absolutely. Like that's, I, I've always stood by the fact that if you have true curiosity for one subject, 
it is so easy to just like reach out and grab other, other curious subjects, you know? Um, There's a lot of people who will kind of like pigeonhole themselves in one thing. It's like, this is all I care about. This is all I want to study. And it's like, oh, like branch out. Like if I, if I'm curious about reptiles and amphibians, like why wouldn't I get curious about fish or birds or plants or, you know, even going beyond that. Like I, I want to learn like the names of stars and stuff and the, like the geologies and all all of these interesting things. Um, The world is just so cool. There's so much going on. It's, it's impossible to be bored by it. If you think you're bored of like the herps in your area, get a pair of binoculars and go check out the birds. There's stuff that you've never seen there. If you get bored by that, go learn the plants and the fish and the, and then the rocks and yeah. the soil communities well, and, there's and the inverts. So much value to being a more well-rounded naturalist, not only from like a career standpoint, if you plan on pursuing natural resources or biology, it, it's really helpful, but also it just improves your experience overall. And absolutely. It seems like, you know, in the herping community, birding community, like you said, a lot of people pigeonhole themselves. And I think that a lot of it's just, I don't know, human psychology. They, they find themselves in a community and that's mm-hmm. like a big part of their identity. Like I used to really identify with the herping community. Not, not so mm-hmm. much now. I, I, I really like spending time with plant people, with botanists, because they, they have a different outlook when they go into ecosystems mm-hmm. and I learn a lot from them and I really appreciate it. Um, but yeah, I just always, I really do try to encourage people to branch out, look, look at different taxa really improve your experience. Yeah. I, I used to, to consider myself like a, a hardcore herper and say like, Oh, I want to be a, a herpetologist. Um, nowadays I would I consider myself much more of a, of a naturalist or an ecologist. Yep. What really interests me is, you know, not just the snake sitting there, but the everything around it. Cause I mean that, the tree it's sitting under the bird up in the tree is as much a part of that experience and as much a a part of, you know, that animal as the animal itself, basically there there's, um, was it like a John Muir quote or something? That's like, uh, when one tries to pull like any organism out of nature, they find that it is, you know, tied to everything else. Um, I probably butchered that quote a little bit. I've got a t-shirt that has it on. I should know better. Um, but it just, you know, I remember growing up and hearing about like the, the food chain or like the, the web, you know, and being like, ah, whatever, but no, it really is, is true. Um, and that's, you know, that's found its way into my professional life now. Like I spend as much time out in the mountains identifying and looking at the plant communities where the snakes are found as I do working with the snakes themselves. Um, actually I probably spend more time with the, with the plants than I do the snakes right. it can be hard to find snakes. And it, knowing more about plant communities yeah. and habitats can make you a better herper ultimately too. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and you know, th- there's some pretty famous examples of that sort of stuff. Like, you know, Eastern indigo snakes and longleaf pine. Um, like that's not like a one-to-one comparison, but you know, you cannot understand an Eastern indigo snake in its entirety without understanding the, the longleaf pine ecosystem. Um, and of course they're found outside of places with longleaf pine, but there's, there's so much 
correlation between the, those species. And then, you know, it extends beyond that too. Like, and this is kind of unscientific. I don't quite have the, the data to back it up, but I've personally seen like a seeming correlation between banded rock rattlesnakes and, um, uh, what is it? Slim leaf mountain mahogany, um, which is just like this little kind of scraggly tree that you find out on mountains in Southeastern New Mexico. Um, but if I'm walking up a hill and there's two rock piles and one of them has a mountain mahogany growing out of it or next to it, that's the one I'm going to yeah. They always yeah. seem to be sitting there. There's gotta be some abiotic factors maybe, um, go at play there. That plant may grow there because of a certain moisture mm-hmm. level or, or temperature level or the soil is a certain way or that mm-hmm. like plants can help you understand a lot of the abiotic situation. Absolutely. And I think it's, you know, it's probably just a factor of like, if there was any type of tree growing right there, the snakes would probably gravitate to it more because you know, it's a little bit of shade, yeah, you know, you. Yeah. it attracts like lizards and bugs and, and whatnot. Um, but that is the species of tree that is, you know, hardy enough to grow in some of those environments. And you. so yeah. it's the one that ends up fine, ends up having snakes around it. Right. Um, and just like uh, understanding that I think, it's made my life more interesting right. at least I often look for like when I'm looking at, um, looking for any sort of grassland herbs, knowing grasses, like perennial grasses, um, that are representative of the, of the climax stage of that grassland is really valuable to me because you know, that area has never been plowed mm-hmm. like, the, like little blue stem, uh, big blue stem, Indian grass those areas always seem to yield more snakes than like a field of, you know, King Ranch blue stem or. Yeah. You're a nerd. Like I am then. Yeah. You, it's you know, interesting too. Grasses. It's interesting. Well, like, that's you're absolutely right. Um, there's a little uh, nature center in the town that I grew up in. I sent, I sent you to. Yeah. Um, awesome place. They've got a fantastic tall grass prairie there. Yeah. Uh, and that little tall grass prairie is like the only spot in the hill country that I know that you can find yellow belly racers. Um, it's also one of the only spots that, you know, hasn't been plowed and isn't just overrun with, with KR bluestem. Yep. You know, it's still got a bunch of the native species of grasses. Yep. It's also, yeah, I've found two Texas tortoises, uh, in that field. Texas tortoises. Mm-hmm. Wow. I've found six Texas tortoises in the hill country. Really? Um, I, dude, and- that, that is so bizarre to me I, I thought they were really limited to the south texas brushlands that's i remember growing up everybody was like oh those are just like transplants that like people went down to south texas found a tortoise and took it home or something and if i'd only found like one or two of them i would be more convinced of that but i've i've found them in multiple places and they seem to be like grass around waterways areas with good um native grasses um i'm not saying there's like a whole bunch of them out there but you know every once in a while they seem to be kind of holding on in places with with good habitat little relic populations in the grasslands yeah i mean it might not even be a relic population it might just be some relic individuals you know you've got an animal that can live 80 years easily you know yeah but that's just like that's you know, cool. 
that's that's where they still are is the the areas with good soil and good grasses are they and documented in the literature from are you cut out no they're not documented in the literature okay. from those areas can you hear me now am i good yeah i can hear you i think there's like a few records and stuff following like kind of coming up the rivers yeah. uh, into the hill country which is is true for indigos like yeah indigos um like desert king snakes and stuff yeah. that's like the big biogeograph one of the big biogeographical patterns of the hill country is that species associated with like the south texas thorn scrub they follow the rivers up into yeah. the hill country the riparian corridor um my connection's oh. been real good this whole oh. time there we go we're happened. good we're good yeah that's good right. stuff man let's cool. uh oh, your Wait. background is a huge great white shark yes yes about it is. that great white shark um, yeah, I've, I've done some cool stuff in my life. Probably the coolest thing I ever did was uh, before I started grad school, I had a couple months to kill. Um, and a friend of mine, Matthew Sullivan, told me about a, a great white shark trip, shark trip that he was doing. He told me he could get me a discount. And so I went and did it. And I, I guess I was kind of like a, a shark hipster. I guess yeah. if, if that's possible where I was like, ah, like great whites, like that's shark and jaws. Like that's lame. I, I want to see the cool sharks. Oh my goodness. There, there is nothing. I've never seen anything like that. They are so big, so powerful and so fast that it just blew my mind. Um, we spent three days out at Guadalupe Island, um, and from sun up to sundown, I was in the water, just like looking at sharks. And we, you know, we had a shark in the water at every single moment. Sometimes we had like seven or eight at one point, just all circling the boat. Absolutely incredible. Um, and I don't know, somebody can tell you like the shark is like 17 feet long and you're like, oh yeah, I, I know what 17 feet is. I have my, my definition of, of 17 feet or 15 feet completely changed after seeing a big shark in the water like that. Yeah. Um, it's just enormous. And the, the thing that really got me about them is that they, they seem to display like real intelligence. Um, you know, everybody talks about like, Oh, sharks are, you know, mindless man eaters and stuff. Yeah. Um, that is not the impression that I got from them at all. Um, I like, they would swim by the, the cage and like, look at us and they, they would, they were just like checking you out. They were intelligent seeing like, Oh, what is this thing in the water? And I, you're not allowed to, but I, I firmly believe that I could have like gotten out of the cage and just like very calmly kind of floated in there, floated there. And I don't really think I would have been in any danger yeah. because I think that they knew, they know that I'm not one of their, their food sources, you know, now if I'd gone up to the top of the water and started like splashing around and acting like a seal, then yeah, I probably would have gotten, uh, at least like an investigation bite or something, which from a 17 foot shark is enough to absolutely kill you. Um, but they, they just displayed such intelligence. And what I found really, really funny is so the way they do it out there is you're in the cages, they've got, you know, rope with like a chunk of tuna or something and they throw it out 
And as the shark comes, they, they pull it out of the way real quick. Um, and the sharks are kind of like playing with it the way that like a cat plays with a, a string, you know, yeah. like it's not full hunting behavior. They're kind of like, ah, I'll, I'll go for it a little bit and get it every once in a while. But every so often you could tell the shark would like actually go for it, would actually try to get it. And every single time that they actually like put effort into catching the little hunk of tuna on the end of the rope, they would get it. Yeah. Um, Cause they'd be doing like lazy bites and whatever. And yeah. then one would just turn on and like be 40 feet down, flick its tail. And next thing it's, you know, moving 40 miles an hour through the water, launching itself out and, you know, grabbing the tuna and there's nothing that the dude pulling the rope could have done. Yeah. Um, they just, when they want to turn on that speed and just, they go. And it was so incredible to see, you know, a 4,000 pound animal go from, you know, a lazy two mile an hour swim to, to 30 miles an hour just instantly. And they, they are so powerful, just pure muscle. I, I could, I could rave about them would you say forever would you say that that was the most profound experience of your life diving with sharks great white yeah i mean it's it's definitely up there uh, yeah. the from the first second i was in the water with them i was blown away yeah um absolutely nothing else like it and i, I really want to go again or go on some more like shark whale big aquatic animal trips um yeah. They're unfortunately always expensive, but that's, that's the limiting it, factor for a lot of people for me. I mean, it, it does make sense that, you know, a trip where you live on a boat for four days, um, and have to have like all of your food brought out there with you. Like it makes sense that that's, you know, it costs some money. You can't do that. Well free. worth it. Uh, well worth it. Huh? Screw the money. You're diving yeah. with sharks. <laughs> Absolutely. And I'm, I'm, yeah hoping and planning to go on another trip. Unfortunately, grad school isn't well known for its, uh, for its free time. Um, <laughs> but as soon as I get some, uh, I really want to get back in the water with sharks. Yeah. Um, they're just so cool. Let's talk about some other cool experiences. I know you've herped, you've herped in like what Guatemala, some other international locales. Yeah. Um, I've done Guatemala, I've done Costa Rica and I've done, okay. uh, Peru and Belize. Okay. Um, Guatemala though was that was it, absolutely yeah. fantastic. You had you had somebody else on who, who talked Ian, about was it yep. Ian? It was Ian. Yep. Um, Guatemala is like not an unknown herpers paradise, um, but it seems to get overlooked, and you know there are good reasons for that. Um, places like Costa Rica or Belize are are much more accessible for tourists. Um, like you can go to Costa Rica without a guide. Um, I would not go to, to Guatemala without, without a guide. And that's, we, we had Andres Novalis with us mm -hmm. who is the absolute goat. He's, he's killing it. He's such a cool, interesting and nice person. And we not only would we have not like had the herping success that we did down there without him, um, we probably would have gotten ourselves killed or arrested or something. Um, and that's, I would say that's true for just about any other country that you go to. Um, I know there's some herpers who like to, 
you're like, I want to do it myself. I want to do the, the stuff. And it's like, you're not, you're never gonna have more insight or more knowledge than someone who grew up there and knows what's going on. Yeah. You know, find a local guide, get, give them money and they will take you out and you will have a much better time than if you were trying to figure it out yourself. And then also like they, they're going to teach you about things that you you wouldn't learn if you were just down there by yourself, you know, yep. they might tell you about the plants or the birds or, you know, the culture. Yeah. The culture um, part. I, the cool thing about wild, the wildlife, you know, realm is also people, you know, getting to, I love going yeah. to new areas and, and, uh, meeting the people that know those areas and, and the culture part and just all mm-hmm. part of the experience. Yeah. When we were down there, I remember like the very first morning I, I was walking around, we were up in a cloud forest and like this, this group of like 40 little Guatemalan women, they were all very short and they were wearing like these beautiful, like handmade dresses with these, um, like these sewing patterns that are like the patterns themselves are endemic to like these little, to like that community in that Valley. And they, they were speaking a language that was endemic to that Valley. Uh, and they just had this incredible, beautiful culture. And I didn't talk to them. They just like walked by and were singing this song in a language that I'd never heard before. Yeah. And I just like stood there and cried because it was just beautiful. Um, and then, you know, like we got to eat, you know, we, we had this, uh, this food, this dish called kakik, um, that was like made with this type of pepper that only grows there. Um, and it, it was just that was as value to be valuable to me as a lot of the, the herb stuff was just getting to see these interesting people and these interesting cultures. Um, and you know, if I can pay them a little bit of money at the same time to, to take a, a guy like me who couldn't have, who wouldn't have a clue down there. Like, yeah, that's, that's a, a really, I don't want to say like a healthy relationship, but it's healthy for conservation, um, ecotourism. So valuable. Um, Now there are, there are some ecotourism practices that can be a little bit destructive, but if you can avoid those, like if, if you want to conserve species and land in, you know, Latin America or like the global South, like they, they have such a wealth of natural history down there. Um, go pay them to show it to you. Yeah. Most of the time they are more than happy to do so. Um, and it seems like all of the people that I meet down there, even if, you know, we only share like two or three words in common. Um, they just have such a, an incredible wealth of knowledge and just, uh, are really interesting to be around. Yeah. But, so yeah, we, we went to Guatemala. We went, we went all over. We did like the low dry forest, the the cloud forests and just like rainforest stuff. And the, the herbs down there were incredible. Um, like the, some of the best herping I've ever had in the tropics. Yeah. Um, we had one night where we got like five or six eyelash vipers, uh, two different types of parrot snakes, some sort of cat snake, some sort of weird hydrophis water snake. Um, a bunch of Belita glossa salamanders, a bunch of weird lizards, you know, all sorts of frogs, like, um, was a dwell mano and stuff. Um, now out of this world, 
there was one species in particular you are after, right? Yeah. Uh, so our, our big thing for going down there was uh, Bothriecus arifer, the uh, yellow blotched palm viper, yeah. um, which our reasons for going that, down there and doing that was for one, um, just a cool ass snake, you know, yeah. it's, it's That's, incredible. Yeah. Um, but then two, uh, so myself and some friends, uh, mostly good friend of mine, Justin Eldon, uh, he was the, the one behind it. Um, have been starting a conservation group uh, called Highlands and Islands Conservation. And our, our first big project that we did was working down in Guatemala with the Yellow Watch Palm Vipers. And so we went down there to find, you know, a place where we could do research. And we sent a bunch afterwards, we sent a bunch of money and gear down there and got a research project going down yeah. there. Um, unfortunately, not exactly our fault, but, you know, we decided to start this thing uh, right as COVID yeah. hit. So that's, that's made no. some things difficult. I mean, it's yeah. made everything difficult coming back up the, this conservation group that justin started it's focusing on like montane habitats montane species mainly is that right yeah high, highlands and islands so montane and islands stuff and islands too so like yeah interesting communities with interesting species mm-hmm. yeah and uh, endemics. If you, yeah if you look at patterns of biodiversity worldwide um there is higher levels of diversity and higher levels of endemism in montane and, you know, island areas, yep. which is, is basically to say that, you know, a lot of things that you find up in mountains, they don't live anywhere else. And if those mountains or that island is destroyed, um, it's really easy for those species to go extinct. So that was our, our focus on it um, was trying to protect those sorts of those sorts of areas and also just i i like mountains you know right i also like islands we've but established I, that by now <laughs> i really like mountains i really like hiking and so you know that sort of stuff has always really interested me um and so we've you know we we got our project in guatemala going um we've ha- we have a project in puerto rico uh that's going we've got a project um we had one in jamaica but covid has made that a little bit difficult um we were working on something in ecuador as well but again covid has made it a little bit difficult uh doing stuff in that area hopefully if things return to normal we can you know yeah something kind of get some more stuff something in europe too something right? in, yeah, so our, our newest thing, and I guess this isn't as much a Highlander as an island, or it's not as much a Highland or an island, but we've got a project going with a, a Ukrainian grad student um, doing like camera trapping work in the Chernobyl exclusion zone, oh. um, which for people who don't know, Chernobyl, big nuclear disaster, um, the exclusion zone around it where it's too radioactive to let people go back and live has become like a nature preserve. Um, and so people are working in there and they've got all sorts of animals that are rare in other parts in Europe, um, making a comeback. Not, we're, that's not so much herps, um, but it's like Przewalski's wild horses. You've got okay. wolves coming back. Um, and so, yeah, and that's, 
I don't know, that, that's not really a Highlander Island, but Justin really likes uh, cool human abandoned landscapes and yeah, that came up and so oh, making it happen. Is he associated with the university or a zoo or? Uh, he's at St. Louis Zoo, but okay. the yeah. Highlands and Islands stuff is is separate from the St. Louis Zoo. Okay, I got um, maybe in the future there's there's some like overlap and stuff, but the Highlands and Islands is is separate. And you know, I, I, I've been a part of it as much as I can, but it's it's really his his baby, um, and it, it's been really admirable watching him go for it. Um, our newest thing now is we've been doing some like trying to get into some like eco tour work. Uh, we just sent some people down to Costa Rica, um, with Justin and some of the other people involved, like miles and Dane, um, and like leading tours down there to raise money. And hopefully we can use that as a a way to gather money for more conservation. Um, that's the, the problem with Highlands and Islands, and this isn't a real problem, but all of us are, are thinking behind it was, you know, just, just wanted to, to give something back to the world of conservation. You know, we all love these species so much and we want to, we want to conserve them. Um, and so that was the thinking behind it. But the problem is that we're all just like weird animal nerds and, uh, conservation work requires so much like fundraising and financial money, stuff and yeah, so money is a big problem and so finding avenues uh for funding all we were like oh shit like we gotta <laughs> now when people you, make money and stuff um when you finish your phd you can like probably have a leg up applying for research grants and stuff right absolutely for highlands and, and islands. That, that's something i would love to i would love a world where someday like that is my full-time job yeah um and it becomes something bigger than any of us uh, involved, like just trying to do as many conservation projects in as many places as possible. And, you know, none of us have like any interest in, in making money. Um, you know, if, if as soon as we get any money, so we've done like a lot of like um, a lot of like selling t-shirts and stuff for projects Um and like any money that we get, we're just like throwing back down there. Um, and we've been trying to do less like work ourselves and more just partnering with people in the area, you know, like rather than sending, uh, an American researcher down to Guatemala to work on, on both Riekas. Um, we, we partnered with Guatemalans who were down there, um, living there who could actually yeah. do that work because they've got the expertise that we don't have, but we've got the access to, you know, all of like this, this first world money. Yeah. And hopefully we can just kind of siphon some of that and towards, yeah. towards conservation work. It's all around the ethical thing to do to get those local naturalists involved. I mean, they're, they live there and that's what they're passionate about. And to just come in here and like push them aside and like study those organisms that they already know is it's kind of rude, mm-hmm. you know? It's, it's weird, the hubris that goes along with like, I'm going to go down to the tropics and I'm going to be the one in charge of this project. Oh, oh you're good now. You're good. Hello. Hello. One, you're two, good. three. We're good. Okay. I, I was just saying that, you know, it's pretty arrogant to like go down there and be like, I'm the expert on this thing. Yeah. And that's not to say that like a, a Western researcher um, 
doesn't have anything to add down there, but you know, in the, in the same way, it would be weird if a, if a Guatemalan person came up here and tried to like, tell me yeah, how to yeah. find Garanotis or something. Turn the tables know? and see how it feels. <laughs> yeah. I would even I be mean, offended if a, a naturalist from Florida tried to, or say like, uh, some, like in the desert, somewhere out West, try to come here and show me how to herp East Texas. Like, yeah. This is my turf, man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, I think that's the, the direction that science needs to go is like recognizing who, who has the expertise. Um, and then just like helping each other, you know, Yeah, there is a, a, a really useful role that Western researchers and Western conservationists can play in um, Latin America, Africa, you know, the global South. Um, and that role is not to go down and, you know, obtain glory for yourself. It is to work with the people who know and understand yes. those environments and come together to actually do some like really useful conservation work. Yeah. And they're, they're um, the ones on the ground just, there that can have an effect on their local community and get everybody on board with conserving natural resources. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. That's, you can't, you can't conserve something without the, w- without the, the consent and the, you know, approval of of the people who actually live down there you know if you just try and go and build a or and just like i'm gonna buy this little patch of forest in guatemala and not let anybody in and i'm doing the conservation um like it's 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 not gonna work partially because you know if if you're an american you go down there and you just buy a piece of land and you think that's conservation well like while you're not down there, people are going and hunting on your land and extracting stuff because they're like, this is, you know, I I don't respect this guy. But if you can go down there and like partner with the community and be like, Hey, let's get, you know, like a, a a nature preserve going. Ecotourism and benefit the lives of the people down there at the same time as you're benefiting the, the, uh, the ecological landscape down there like that's that's win-win that is how you build sustainable conservation yeah um is by helping the people and and the places and people yes. seem to be getting that more and more these days um hopefully hopefully that that trend increases mm-hmm. i mean i guatemala specifically i want i want to see guatemalans conserving guatemala yeah i don't want to see you know american conservation groups even as i am part of a american conservation group like all all i want to do is help help them preserve their where they live ancestral lands Uh, you know yeah because that's good for everyone yeah how do you feel them how do you feel about conservation as a whole going forward you know on a global scale Uh, loaded question there (laughs) yeah it honestly depends on how good of a mood i'm in Right. Um, are you are you optimist, pessimist? There are a lot of good things happening, but there's so many people, man. We have a lot of yeah, problems I, to address. There, there are so many like good stories um, and good things being done, and that's the sort of thing that I always want to focus on. Sometimes I 
you know, you, you can definitely become pessimistic about it. If you look at, you know, global climate change, you know, the, the general trends of, of deforestation and habitat destruction, like it's, it's depressing sometimes. Um, it's, this is not exactly a fun or a happy line of work. Um, if you're paying attention to stuff, it can get, it can just really bog you down. Um, but I, I try and stay positive on it, but there's a lot of times that I, I think that like my own work and the work of all conservationists is, you know, is ultimately pointless. Um, but on one hand, like that sort of thinking has no chance of, of helping. Yeah. You What's know? the alternative? Just sit here and watch it burn without doing yeah, something. It, yeah. If, and that's the other thing is like, if, even if I, even if nothing is saved at the end, you know, and everything just burns up and is destroyed, like what, am, what else am I going to do? Right. And I, I, I will be more satisfied with my life personally. If I think that I've made a, you know, made my, or tried my best to, to protect something, tried my best to protect even like the smallest little patch of, land or a single species or anything like that's i don't know i'll I'll die happier if i if i think that i can do that for a lot of non-wildlife people they they might they have a hard time understanding why we're concerned about biodiversity and like these people don't understand Mm -hmm. like here in north america we've already gone through the the bulk of our biodiversity loss and it's it's already taken out Mm -hmm. so many species we north you know Post-European settlement in North America is, is very different than, you know, three or 400 years ago. No more bison, mm-hmm. large herds of bison on the landscape. You know, passenger pigeons blinked out. There were millions of them mm-hmm. flying across the sky and they blinked out from, from over harvest. And so mm-hmm. like now when I look at the landscape here, it's, it's more about just conserving what little we have left, you know? But you go down to like mm-hmm. Central and South America, we actually still have the pristine condition to conserve, which is really different than mm-hmm. conservation efforts. there yeah. are going to be different than what we have here. You know, there's so many little nuances with conservation and it, it's, um, I am naturally very optimistic, but it, it does get depressing, especially like here in North America, mm. we have such little left. And so like, when I see this interesting little plant community, that's barely hanging on, just get plowed over for no good reason. Like you couldn't have just mm-hmm. let, left that two acres of land and gone and, you know, developed on land that was already disturbed 10 times over. Those are the things mm-hmm. that really frustrate me, you know? Yeah. And I think uh, one of the biggest problems with conservation is that like a lot of the things that need to happen, um, they aren't always being done with like a conservation mindset. Like a, a good example is uh, solar panels, solar farms. Yeah. Um, and there's been like a meme going around about yeah, this I saw it today. recently, which is why it's on my mind. Um, you know, we absolutely need to divest from fossil fuels. Um, that's like full stop. But at the same time, like if people are going around and like bulldozing down prime habitat and stuff just to, to build a solar farm, like that's, that's not helping, you know, yeah. there are smart ways of, of doing this. Um, yeah. And wind farms also suck. I hate seeing wind farms. 
Mm-hmm. I don't know the the effect on birds is as high as people. And there's a lot of studies going on with that. There's ways to avoid it, but it's just a, a, a mm-hmm. it's not nice to look at when you're out in the desert. You know, I don't want to look at wind farms. It's not wild. It looks, yeah. I just, it's a, unfortunately it's an ice eyesore. Um, eyesore. I know a lot of people will, will bring up like the, the effects to, to birds, yeah. but I guess my, my argument against that is like, if you're really, concerned about bird conservation like the the effects that um, feral and domestic cats have on bird populations and the effects that window kills have on birds like people say like oh this you know this windmill killed like 300 birds or something it's like you should see what like a single skyscraper does (laughs) baby numbers yeah yeah like the amount of birds that hit windows and die in every single city in the U S right now, especially ones that have skyscrapers astronomical. Um, so uh, windmills aren't as bad as a lot of people, you know, like to think they are. There's definitely, I mean, you know, hopefully that there's a, there's a way that we can, you know, make them safer for birds in the future. And there's other designs that can be used. Build them in areas that have already been disturbed, build them in ag lands, not in pristine deserts. Yeah. Yeah. And there's also like more efficient and like less, I don't know, less destructive, like forms of windmills. Like there's a, and this is a little bit of a sidebar, but there's like a, a single like rotating or like wiggling tube that as the wind pushes it, it like, it moves like back and forth like that. Um, and it generates electricity and you can put, you know, 10 of them in the space of one of the big windmills. Um, and they don't kill birds as much. Um, and that's just part of it is, is, is figuring out the most efficient ways to do this conservation work Yeah, and figuring out those efficient ways. You know, it it takes time. I understand that. Um, but I asked, uh, we've got to do it. Romy Swanson, this, where do you see, I asked him just specifically about Texas, but where do you see the world in say 50 years, as far as our biodiversity and how we're addressing our global problems with it? Where, where do you see us in 50 years? Have you philosophized about this yet? <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh yeah. I've, I've <laughs> philosophized about this. I've panic attacked about, about this. Like what's, yeah. what's left in 50 years. I think even if, you know, we do really, really, really good. And we, we somehow get our shit together as a species and like really put our backs in conservation. I think that all of us need to understand that it is inevitable that in 50 years, we will be looking at a very different global community or global ecological community. I mean, go backwards 50 years. That's why I always always say 50 years because you go back 50 years, totally different well in the last 50 years we have lost 50 percent of the animal biomass on earth like that's not we haven't lost 50 percent of species but there are half as many animals alive on earth right now as there were in like 1975 or something it's insane that's insane now, back then, and, they didn't have cons- the, quite the conservation movement that we have now. That's that's the mm-hmm. key point there. Absolutely. Like, now that we see and know that something is going on, hopefully we can take the steps to fix it. But 
you know, even if we get our butts, you know, in gear, then we're, we're still going to have a different ecological community. And I think that unfortunately we need to be ready for the idea that we're not just going to be missing certain species, but there are certain ecosystems that we are going to lose. Yeah. Um, the world's going to be soon. overrun by generalist species and plant, you mm-hmm. know, plants and animals, invasive dispersal, mm-hmm. be worse. It'll be just totally different. We'll yeah. still have wildlife, yeah. but it'll be, the composition will be a lot different. If mm-hmm. it keeps going. Yeah. Up I mean, it's not looking good for coral reefs. Yeah. Um, it's not looking good for some like little specialist plant communities. Yeah. Um, like the, what is it? The Florida pine rocklands comes to mind. It doesn't look good for the pine rocklands. Yeah. Um, unless some significant action is taken. Um, and I say that, and a lot of people are like, okay, like what is significant action? Um, well, a lot of it uh, happens on fairly local scales. Yeah. If you live around the pine rocklands if you live in that county like that is not just your opportunity to do some conservation work i would say that's your uh, that's your responsibility yeah you know um i live in the texas hill country we have some cool little ecosystems that need protection um i i live here i pay taxes here i vote here um it's up to up to me to yeah. to do that stuff around here it's I a think, lot of like springs and yeah. and whatnot um, that's a very important point i'm glad you said that because a lot of people they they want to be a conservationist and they they mm-hmm. post all this they always share stuff about like the megafauna in africa and like mm-hmm. elephants this elephants that and but yet they don't know anything that's going on in their own backyard and yet they could have mm-hmm. a much more direct and meaningful impact if they learn about their local community ecosystem and plant communities and mm-hmm. animal communities rather than just yeah trying to be like a popular conservationist sharing like trendy conservation stuff mm-hmm. i just i love elephants and stuff but like africa gets so much already in terms of resources and attention and mm-hmm. you know, management of wildlife yeah there's problems yeah. there but like learning about your local ecology is so valuable mm-hmm. you know? yeah like what if I think about like, what can I, I do personally, me, Saunders Drucker, um, well, I can help with the San Marcos river fund. San Marcos river is a really interesting little clear spring fed river with several endemic species, um, by working with and helping with river cleanups and, you know, hoping or voting for people who will give money to San Marcos river conservation that is something that i can do that that is a a very real effect that i can do to preserve that that ecosystem um i can then you know i can help push for like construction zoning laws that like increases riparian corridors which if you really want to conserve species in a you know wilderness urban environment conserving riparian corridors is a great way to do that there's yes. so many species that use them and they can be used as like connections between larger uh conserved areas yeah um i i personally i probably can't do anything to help african elephants right um you know 
what do you maybe mean, i can give like twenty dollars <laughs> and what does that yeah, mean but that's that that doesn't do that doesn't do anything yeah. um really now if uh, thousands of people give twenty dollars perhaps something mm-hmm. somebody benefits or some wildlife benefits but it's just who knows where the money's going and you know it's halfway mm-hmm. across the world and but I can, I mean, people say it all the time, uh, think globally, act locally, you know, I like that. Uh, I've never heard that, but I like that a lot. Yeah. It's, I can conserve the thing. I can help to conserve the things around me. Uh, and it's not always like glamorous, you know? Um, I I guess I do do some glamorous conservation work, like out in the mountains working on rattlesnakes and stuff. Um, but going to a, a city council meeting, here in Wimberley or San Marcos is just as useful, you yeah. know? <clears throat> you know, part of the reason I started this podcast is to have these sorts of more philosophical conservation talks. Um, and I'm it, glad it just, someone is. It's just so hard to get like people that don't have an ecology background or biology background or, you know, otherwise aren't naturalists at all. It's hard to get mm-hmm. them to understand because they're like, they go outside and they see trees and they see birds. It's just so mm-hmm. hard to get them to understand that like things aren't the same as they were. Like we've lost mm-hmm. so much. Like when you see a here in the piney woods, you see like a fort, you see a big stand of pine trees, and mm-hmm. people think that's just a fort, regular forest. No, that, that's a pine plantation. That, that's a farm that doesn't support yeah. nearly the amount of biodiversity that it did in its original condition. And you know, red cockaded woodpeckers can't survive in that. Louisiana pine snakes can't survive in that. Mm-hmm. It's just, man, it's just so hard to get people to wrap their head around how how sensitive plant animal communities are ecosystems in general and how it's so important and the thing is too like when you lose an ecosystem it's never even you plow an ecosystem over it will take Mm. thousands of years for it to return to its original condition support the same number of species Mm -hmm. these ecosystems are so like look at the amazon it's been forming over millennia long Mm -hmm. very long periods of time for it to exist the way it does and support that biodiversity. So like when you clear a tract of it, that's it. That's gone forever. You can't go back. Mm-hmm. That's it. Yeah. You can replant and, you know, get the, some of the plants back and some of the more generalist species will return. Mm-hmm. It's never going to be the same. And that's the fresh, the really the frustrating part for me. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, you mentioned like the Amazon, like the, the Mississippi river and, you know, it's bottomlands and stuff. Yeah. I mean, we're, they weren't, equal in biodiversity to the amazon but a wild place nonetheless a wild Wild absolute wilderness with incredible tree diversity incredible animal diversity and unfortunately we've we've like tamed that river by just you know putting up levees and not allowing it to meander anymore the agricultural development in that corridor if you can look at it on google maps it's really easy to see the mississippi watershed because it's all been developed by ag Mm -hmm. It's just, it's yeah. Forest, I mean, like, same thing for like the Brazos in Texas. Brazos too. Yeah. If you look at the, the Google maps of Texas, you can see like this ag scar along the Brazos river. Yeah. And those are things that like uh, a lot of people don't realize that like something was lost there. And you said it perfectly. People don't, people don't know. There's a massive, like people talk about plant blindness, you know, people go outside and don't, they have no idea what the plants around them are, but they've got, there's massive like ecological blindness. So many people that think like, Oh, a tree is a tree. It's like, no, that's, that's a China berry. It's invasive. It's not (laughs) supposed to be. Yeah. 
or like that's a nandina yeah it's fairies are pretty but they kill birds and people are, yeah. people have have no idea um and it's 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 a real shame because i think that there is so much just beauty and joy to be found in like a healthy native ecosystem yeah. um and and people don't a lot of people don't what they're missing yeah i mean there was a, a time in human history the majority of human history our our lives our survival was directly tied to the health of the ecosystem around us um you know if they you had to know the the trees around you you had to know what the animals did like because you had to hunt and gather and all that stuff and we we've removed ourselves from that unfortunately now granted in removing ourselves from that we've you know we've like increased quality of life for people all across the the world, you know, population has skyrocketed, which is a bit of a double-edged sword. And so I'm not saying like, uh, I'm not saying that human progress has been all bad, but we are. Here we are talking on a, on a video chat. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Um, But no, we, we are, we are so out of touch and we, I don't know. It feels like there's less and less of a sense of place. Yeah. These days, you know, I really lean into the hunting culture because it can bring Mm -hmm. people back to that connection to ecosystems Mm -hmm. and a lot of hunters, they don't know it, but that's their connection to ecosystems is hunting Mm -hmm. and, um, really trying to spread the conservation message, you know, and Mm -hmm. as many different angles, as many different angles as possible. I think yeah, that's why I still, you you know, you lean into my hunting background it's not mm-hmm. that I'm a, I'm a biologist first hunter second I'm not mm-hmm. I was a, I had a guy on Instagram comment on my last hunting post um talking about why he has a problem with hunting and I just made sure to put in there when I commented I'm a, I'm a naturalist first the mm-hmm. reason I hunt is because I'm passionate about natural history I'm passionate about mm-hmm. conservation I'm not a hunter that just is hiding under the guise of of a naturalist trying to you know convince people that hunting is great just because I like it. And yeah. I don't you I mean, know what I mean. <laughs> listening to your podcast has has really inspired me to I don't know, to start hunting myself. And like I said at the beginning of the podcast, for years I've been saying like, oh I'm gonna take a I'm gonna take a white tail this year. It's a logistical problem uh, for a lot of people. It's you know you gotta you know find land yeah. to hunt on, you gotta get firearms and mm-hmm. it's you know it's intimidating for a lot of people. I don't know if that's your case. Your, yours is time mainly I guess but time and you know it no it is i i it's a whole new thing that i would have to to figure out because i've never really done it before um but like here in the hill country killing and eating a white-tailed deer is probably the most ethical way to eat meat that i can imagine um for years the past couple years i've not I'm, i'm certainly not a vegetarian but i've been lowering the amount of meat that i eat you know by gradual percentages especially red meat um, and I've been limiting like the, a lot of the meat that I eat to stuff that I get from a little local grocer in, in San Marcos where I, you know, they're getting meat from, you know, farms that are like within a hundred miles of here that are doing like restorative farming practices because yeah. big ag is a massive problem, but there is a way to do regenerative farming that is healthy for the ecosystem and actually, you know, really useful in conservation. And so I've been trying to support those sort of places and practices more and more and more but you know if if, if i killed one white-tailed deer that's probably enough 
enough red meat for me for an entire year. I don't eat yeah. that much red meat. Right. Um, it's, it's, it's so, it's such a deep connection too. Cause that, that deer was part of the natural ecology of that area you love so much. So like you're eating mm-hmm. the meat and like it, it got his nutrients from the, from the, those very same plants that you're interested in. And yeah, it's just, uh, it's a cool way to connect with nature. And it also like, especially in the hill country, you'll have some rare plants and, you mm-hmm. know, there's increased herbivory of these plants because deer have, you know, are exceeding carrying capacity. Mm-hmm. So it's like a, a good ecological thing to harvest white yeah. deer in areas like that. Cause it can save a, a rare plant from, from blinking out. Yeah. The, the hill country of Texas, like white tailed deer need to be cold. And yeah. I would, I would love it if we could like reintroduce wolves and mountain lions here to solve that problem. That would be fantastic, but, but not feasible. Realistically, <laughs> I know that that's not going to happen. Yeah. So I'll take a, a, a white tail. I will also say part of it is a little bit of spite. Um, the white, the deer in my neighborhood are so bad that like, I can't grow anything in my front yard, oh, wow. like cactuses, agaves, <laughs> like deer resistant species, like nothing. Even if they don't eat them, they just like trample them. It's like, yeah. it's like, they've got a weird vendetta against me. They've eaten so many plants. Yeah. I've, I've been trying to like make a little native prairie out in our front yard. Um, Won't happen. Everything I put out there, they kill. <clears throat> Man, we're about, uh, we're going to be closing in on two hours. Let's, um, you have any closing remarks, anything you want to just any, you know, public service announcements? Um, public service announcements. I would say get involved in your, your local conservation scene. You know, if there's something coming up on like the, the health of a river or something, go to your city council meeting and tell them like, Hey guys, don't, don't bulldoze this river or something. Or if there's like a local nature center, like go, a lot of times when you look at the global patterns of biodiversity loss, it's really easy to get depressed and be like, yeah. there's nothing I can do. And it's like, there is something that I, you can do. No, you can't. You personally can't save the Great Barrier Reef. What you can do is save Cibolo Creek or something, you know? Yeah. yeah. So I would say that for, for people. Um, yeah. What about, you know, people that want to get into, into a biology career or, or, natu- or trying to become a naturalist, like young younger people or, or older people, people that might want to get into, into this stuff. What, what do you want to say to them? I, I would say, honestly, kind of the same thing. Um, yeah. One of the involved big locally. things that, yeah, one of the big things that I think made me not just like a, a dude who likes nature, but set me on the path to conservation is at the little nature center, Cibolo Nature Center in Bernie, Texas. Uh, growing up, they did like a citizen science thing twice a year. And I went out there and Dave Barker headed it up and we like every single year for like 20 years now or something, been catching water snakes and pit tagging them and just doing like this little project on, on water snakes. And yeah, I started that when I was like, I, I started doing that when I was like eight years old and, and now I'm the one who leads it twice a year. Awesome. Um, that was fundamental for me. So, you know, it's really important to just, be out in nature. That's something I, you know, that's really important for me, but also if, if you want to do conservation work, like find a citizen science program or something, if you're an undergrad college student, like go up to some biology professor and ask them if there's any project that they can put you on. It's just like a field tech field grunt. I, I 
helped out with so many projects when I was an undergrad with like even projects for people that didn't even go to my school. Um, like I went and helped PhD students at university of Tennessee and stuff. Yeah. Um, just any opportunity, go beg yeah. people to take you out into the field and don't wait till um, college. If you're like, you're in high school and you want to study biology, go become a great naturalist now. And then when you go into college, you're going to stand out. Like, that, absolutely. That was, like when I went to A&M, I was surprised at the number of my classmates that had like very little knowledge of, of their local ecosystems or the outdoors at all. Mm-hmm. You know, don't just rely on college, become a great naturalist in your own time, go out and get good field experience. You know, it's not necessarily science, you know, doing research, but get to know ecosystems. That's, I mean, even in grad school, I mean, grad students coming in who have waited until grad school to start doing biology stuff mm-hmm. other than just getting like a biology degree. And I'll be honest, like those are the people who don't, don't make it in grad school. Like yeah. if you come into grad school wanting to do biology and you have no field work that, that is, you know, field biology, not like laboratory molecular biology yeah. or something. But if you want to do field biology, I start it as soon as you can, because if you yes. show up with no field skills to grad school, you're, you're not going to make it that long. Yeah. That's good stuff, man. Well, we can end it there. Thank you so much for coming on Saunders. Really enjoyed. Yeah. This. I've been really excited to talk with you. You and I have to get out in the field yep. together sometime. Um, make it happen. Yeah. So, all right, man, I'll end it there. Thank you. Thanks again, man.